Two things. One, remember right after the service, we'll break for about just a few minutes and we'll have a special called church conference in relationship to the letter I sent to you all. We've had a listening session for that already. And there are big, three big items coming to you to vote on uh, in that meeting. Secondly, uh, if I say something really strange this morning, I'm very sleep deprived. I've been on uh, grandpa duty Thursday and Friday in Alabama <clears throat> through the night to give them kind of a, a break. And so um, I remember now why we have our children when we're young. Uh, so, uh, but it's been a great time and it's uh, been a great opportunity to go see our granddaughter. You know, once in a while you hear reports out of the military related to disciplinary action being taken against an officer for committing adultery. This is still in force in, in our military. I read recently of a former general in charge of the U.S. Air Force Warfare Center who was forced to give up his command for what was called, quote, an alleged unprofessional relationship. And after an investigation into his behavior, and he had committed adultery apparently, and apparently with uh, others before that, uh, he received what is known as an Article 15, which uh, those of you in the military may know what that is. But basically, uh, they retired him, but not as a general, but as a colonel. And so, apparently, there was a pattern of this behavior. It cost him his rank, it cost him dollars, and it cost him his wife. Now, he had married his wife in the early 90s. Their divorce was final in 2018. The articles that I read about that particular situation did not mention anything about children, so I don't know about the status of the home in that area. In my years of dealing with people, I think the misuse of the body brings some of the most devastating pain to people's lives, particularly is this true of those who are the victims of it, of someone committing adultery against them. And yet no one who falls into or walks into this sin is immune from the fact that as the Bible says, the way of the transgressor is hard. There are stumbling blocks in relationship to our sin. You know, God has put powerful drives in our bodies for good, for the survival and growth of the human race, for joy, and for human flourishing. And yet, when those gifts are misused, great havoc is wreaked and brokenness felt. And that is why the Lord has given to us some very blunt direction about how we're to use and not use our bodies. He desires to protect us from pain, and He also desires for us to experience the best of these gifts as we mature in Christ, as we enjoy them in the way that He intends. Well, this morning, we're continuing in our True Lines series, message 34, and at this stage, we are learning about sanctification or holiness. That's what the word sanctification means, set apart to be holy. And that holiness means that we're growing up to become like the Lord who has redeemed us, who is completely holy, indeed perfect, the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says that we're to grow up in Him. We're to mature in Him. This process for us is lifelong. It is progressive. That is, we grow and overcome certain things, and God continues to show us areas of our life where we need to change more, things we need to turn from, that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him the way that we should. And this work will not be complete until the other side. When we are on the other side in heaven, that's called glorification. And when there, we're free from the penalty of sin, which we're already free from here. We're free from the very presence of sin and glorification 
even within ourselves. But here we're overcoming sin. And we're distancing ourselves from different things in life that have hindered us. We have power within us to overcome things. And so we can grow. And the Bible teaches us that as uh, what a mature character looks like in disposition, action, thought, and feelings. And that teaching comes to us in the form of commands, in the form of illustration. It is the law of Christ that teaches us how to grow up and to progress in our walk. And we find that the law in the Old Testament, that some of that is restated in the New Testament, is applied to us and is part of God's process as we obey His commands and lean upon the Spirit that we are transformed, that we grow up into maturity in Jesus. And that is we grow to become like the character of God Himself. We don't become divine, but we mature to grow up to be like God in our character and in our lives. So that's kind of where we are in this part of the series. And today, we come to a point of learning about what the Bible teaches regarding the use of our bodies in certain areas. And so we have been exploring this part of the series by looking at the Ten Commandments and how they are restated in the New Testament. So now we come to the Seventh Commandment, and the message is entitled, Honoring God with Our Bodies. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 20 again, and then we'll look in Matthew and Proverbs as we get started today. So Exodus chapter 20 in verse 14. Here are the Ten Commandments. Seventh, one, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Then in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 through 35, we hear the wisdom literature reminding us of the danger of falling into this sin of adultery, beginning in verse 27 of Proverbs 6. The Bible says, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Yet if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it cost him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, however great it is. And then when we go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus restating this command and applying it to our lives as his followers. Beginning in verse 27 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So as we continue now in the second part of the Ten Commandments, the commandments now have to do with our relationships with others. First part of the commandments, 
deal with our vertical relationship with God. Second part of the table of the Ten Commandments deals with our relationships with other people, with one another. And so, in particular, here in relationship to this idea, God is teaching us to not use our bodies wrongly in the area of sexuality. And so, God is teaching us to foster human good and the good of His people by protecting and promoting marriage through this command. So, let's dig into it along three lines today. First of all, let's look at the commandment itself. As with the other nine commandments, this one is like a category of sorts. So, you think about the Ten Commandments, there's like category headings. That is, a lot of things fit under them, not just the idea of adultery, but he's teaching them how to use our bodies, teaching how to use our bodies in the right way sexually. So, it's applied in other ways in the New Testament. Jesus takes it deeper to the matter of the heart, not just physical activity. And so all of these commands have further application. They're fleshed out in the New Testament. But we see it stated here in the Old Testament with applications in the New. And so in the Exodus command, God is simply saying this. He is commanding his people to not participate in voluntary sexual relations, intercourse with someone who is not your spouse. Married people are to be faithful to their married spouses, a husband or a wife. And in the law of Israel, this sin carried great penalty. If you look in the book of Leviticus, chapter 20 and verse 10, the penalty in Israel in their law in relationship to this sin was this. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. And so it carried that severe penalty there. And you remember in the New Testament where the woman was brought to Jesus caught in adultery, right? And they tried to put the law on him in relationship to that. But he says, you know, the man was not there, right? And he said, which of you without what? Sin? The one without sin cast the first stone. And so it was not a legal proceeding. They were just trying to have a kangaroo court there in the middle of the street. Violating this law to sin against one's spouse also is seen in the Old Testament as to sin greatly against God. Do you remember in the book of Genesis chapter 39, we hear the story of Joseph. Joseph got sold into slavery by his brothers. He's carried down into Egypt. He ends up working for an Egyptian official. And the Bible says about uh, Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 6, that he was a, a very handsome person. So the Bible recognizes here beauty, right? And we'll come back to that in a moment. It says that Joseph was well-built and handsome. In verse 7, it says, After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph. This reminds us that this works both ways, right? It's not just men looking at women. This is a woman looking at a man. And she lusts for him in her heart. And she says, come to bed with me. But he refused. He said, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing, listen, and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. And so that's the idea of the command in its core understanding. It was dealing with a physical relationship. And so this command is repeated or restated and affirmed many times in the New Testament. 
And so it's morally binding on all Christians as well. And so if we turn to Matthew chapter 19, one place is restated, Matthew 19, 17, and 18. It says, why do you ask me what is good, Jesus replied. He's talking to the rich young ruler. There is only one God who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which one, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. We've looked at that one. You shall not what? Commit adultery. You shall not steal. So he is drawing upon the Ten Commandments here. But Jesus not only repeats it, Jesus takes it as he does the command not to murder, and he expands upon it and deepens it and applies it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28 when he says, you've heard that you must not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you look upon someone and lust for them, you've committed adultery with them already in your heart. You see, the Jewish religious leadership had narrowed the commandment down to just dealing with the physical. As long as you don't sleep with somebody's wife, you've not committed adultery. Jesus says, no, you've misunderstood and misapplied the law. Because your own law, right next to that, right after that, says you're not to even covet your neighbor's wife, right? And so Jesus expands it to what God intends for it to to be, how, how it's supposed to look. So how does he apply this command beyond just the physical as important as the physical is in itself. Well, he does so in a number of ways. Centrally, he asserts here that we can commit adultery as well in our minds and with our hearts. Now, let me just go over here a little little sidebar before I proceed and make sure that we're understanding what the Bible is, uh, is trying to say. We must understand that the Bible holds up sexuality and sexual relationships as something wonderful and good within marriage between a man and a woman. Some have tried to say that Christianity is prudish about sex, but it is not prudish. It just knows and teaches that this powerful passion must be confined to marriage. And like any gift from God, sex can be abused and wrongfully used and bring great damage. But within marriage, it is one of the great gifts to be enjoyed. And there is a book in your Bible that you can read that goes down that track, and that's the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. A wonderful book. It's not about Christ and the church. Some people try to say the Song of Solomon is about Christ's love for the church. Well, Christ loves this church and has an intimate relationship with it, but it's a book about intimacy in a marriage between a man and a woman. It's to be celebrated. Furthermore, in these commands, Jesus is not uh, forbidding looking at someone of the opposite sex and observing that they are attractive. And the Bible talks about Joseph that was well-built and handsome. We're built in such a way that we notice, Right? attractive features in people. That's just the way the human body is wired. But there is a difference between looking and lusting, as one scholar put it, and we know the difference. Furthermore, even friendships with people of the opposite sex, that's not being condemned. They're possible. And there can be a connection with friends, right, within boundaries in relationship to someone of the opposite sex. That is not condemned. I assume in the traveling band of Jesus and his disciples and the women who accompanied them, that many of them would have seen each other as friends. And we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2, that you're to tell Timothy to the pastor that you are to uh, um, treat the younger women as sisters with all purity. But if you have a sister relationship, that is a, a right, there's a, a friendship in that relationship. So he's not condemning any of that. 
But what he is condemning here is all forms of immorality or all forms of immorality in relationship to someone of the opposite sex. And Jesus is noting that one can cross the line into immorality in a number of ways. Physically, yes, but also we can cross it in the area of our imaginations. That will be one connection Jesus is making in this passage when he says in verses 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you, you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Or if somebody looks at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with them already. But remember, it can go both ways, as we saw Potiphar's wife lusting after Joseph. These are sins of the imagination. We begin by, by committing what has been called eye adultery. And that begins with the eyes looking lustfully at someone, and that becomes connected to our hearts. And the Bible makes that connection. It makes it positively and negatively. If you go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 18, I'm using a lot of Scripture today. I hope you'll follow along. Ephesians 1.18 says, Paul is praying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. See the connection? The eyes that you the the inner sight that you have. But the connection of that often begins with the outward eye. But here he's telling them to know the, the love of Christ. But if you go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, and he here is talking about false teachers in the church. And he says in verse 14 of 2 Peter 2, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. So here we see people sinning with their eyes in their heart. And Job mentions this connection as well. If you go to the book of Job in chapter 31, Job 31 in verse 1, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. In verse 7, if my steps have turned from the path, if... If my heart has been led by my eyes, do you see that? If my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's doors. So here you see the idea of the heart being caught up in that idea of lusting after someone in that way. And so, the imagination of mankind is a great and glorious gift. But here we see that if you look at someone and begin to imagine things in the heart, with the eyes of the heart, then with someone who is married, that will be adultery in the heart. So, as one scholar put it, deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame, and the inflaming of the imagination by the indiscipline of our eyes. So tied to this then, in contemporary terms, if you've ever wondered if pornography would be condemned in the New Testament, it certainly would be right here by Jesus' words, would it not? And please don't try to say that porn is art. It is not. Certainly, and images affect different people in different ways, we would all be wise to avoid the images that are available through print and technology that would not have been available 2,000 years ago. And so we're called to protect our marriages and protect other marriages by not coveting someone's spouse, Exodus 20, 17, and by not having a physical relationship with someone else's spouse, and by not lusting in how we look at or think about someone else's spouse. And this would apply as well to single people. 
you're a single person and you look at someone who is married in that way, you can commit adultery with them in your mind and in your heart. It's not just married people to married people. And furthermore, as we think about this in relationship to people who are single, right? This is where the application spreads out farther. We can see that how we handle our bodies with people of the opposite sex are things we have to think about when we are single as well. And I had asked Chase to read that passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so if a single person crosses the, crosses the line physically with another single person or in their imagination crosses the line in their heart of lusting for another single person, that would be the sin of fornication, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 6. And he says we're to flee from that sin in our lives because he says that it's a sin that affects our own bodies. We're to flee from that sin. But he also says we, we don't belong to ourselves. We have been bought with a price. That's the blood of Jesus has bought us. So we're to glorify God with our bodies. So that's the command. But why is God so concerned about this matter? If he made us with these strong desires... How, how is this applied, or why is he applying this in this way? What's the rationale? Well, let me give you a few, and again, I'm not trying to be exhaustive here, but let me just give you four or five things quickly. Why does God say, I've given you these great drives, but you've got to use them within these parameters? Well, one, he does so to protect marriage for the good of the race. You know, God's will for his people is either that we remain single and celibate in relationship to him, or to marry someone of the opposite sex. And it is through marriage that families are built, children come. Security in a changing world is found in smaller circles of people devoted to each other because they're flesh and blood. And when this pattern is breached or not followed, the human race becomes vulnerable and endangered. Confusion comes with sometimes children conceived in an adulterous relationship who are then caught in a cauldron of confusion. Trust is broken, and it is hard to go forward with a lack of trust, and the whole cohesion of the family is compromised. We all know by observation that pain comes when people fall into adulterous relationships, sometimes pain that can affect entire generations of people coming later. And so God gives us this guideline to protect us, and the race itself and God has apparently put boundaries within sexuality itself in relationship to the fact that if we live outside of these boundaries, we open ourselves up to diseases, sexually transmitted diseases. That if you keep this within the confines of marriage, you're not going to have that. But if you venture outside of that, I think the Lord has put penalties there as part of the equation. And just because they can be fought with medicine does not negate that I think that those are judgments of God for the transgressor. So it's to protect us and the good of the race. Another reason, another rationale for this is to keep us from harmful steps and defacing ourselves further in our sin. You know, all human sin defaces us. It lessens or cheapens or scars the image of God in us. When we're saved, we're in a process of being fully remade in His image. To succumb to adultery in thought or action mars what is supposed to be beautiful and freeing, an experience that one can have in marriage. But when we are outside of that, it scars us internally. That's why 
1 Corinthians about fornication says that a man, when he commits that sin, he, he, he sins him against himself. A third reason God gives it to us is to protect the marriage bond. You know, we used to speak about the bonds of holy matrimony, right? And you know, in the past, there was actually an instrument, like a bond, that, that expressed an intention to marry someone. A sort of a legal document. There was also a movie produced in the 1930s called The Marriage Bond. But there's also a bond brought about in the physical union of a man with a woman. That's why they're one flesh. Did you know that in sexual union, a hormone is released in us that's the same hormone that is released when a baby is being nursed by a mother and lying close on the mother's breast? And so... When we're engaged in that relationship, that bonds us someone with someone chemically. Strong things are released in us. Adultery breaks that bond that's to be between two people and produces another person into the relationship, and it brings confusion into one's feelings and decision-making. And as an aside, I just want to say to, to those of you who are single, this is a very good reason for you to not have sexual relationships before you get married. Because if you do, you're already releasing, right, a bond between you and that other person. And when people begin their relationships, they start having physical relationships early on before they're married, sometimes you're bonded to somebody chemically in a way that this is going to be a horrible person for you to try to spend the rest of your life with. But your brain is so clouded and confused. Love is what? Blind. Sometimes that's where the blindness comes from. And if you're involved in that, you may set yourself up for tremendous failure in life in relationship with somebody because you're not meant to be with them. And so we're to stay bonded in that way because there's that chemical bond. A fourth thing, reason we have this rationale is that it damages our witness if we fall into adultery. You know, in Christian marriages... Our marriages are to reflect Christ's love for and devotion to his church. That's what our marriages are to be. Me loving my wife as Christ loved the church. She's submitting as, to me as the head as we submit to Christ as our head. And it's a witness to the world. It's what God intends for your marriage to be. But when a believer commits adultery, it causes us to misrepresent God to the world. We want to honor God because we belong to Him. We've been purchased. We want to represent Him well. We are not our own. And we don't want to damage that witness to God. I think that's one reason in Psalm 51, 4, when David's confessing his sin with Bathsheba to God, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And often in the Old Testament, the idea of adultery is used to depict people right, idolatry of the heart, going after idols and not loving God as they should and they're misrepresenting who the true God is when they go after idols. The same thing is being depicted. If you and I fall into adultery, we're misrepresenting God and the fact that we are lessening what our marriages are supposed to be before the watching world. And then one other thing about this, why does God give us this rationale? He does so because He cares about us that we truly grow up into Him. And so, as we learn to deny our flesh, 
and turn away from wrongful desires. We're making conscious decisions to put God first in all things. And that our commitment to Christ, I want to put you first in all things. That's not just in my physicality of how I act, but also in how I think and how I look at things and look at people. If we control our hearts and our thoughts and our eyes because we love Jesus, then we're maturing to become like God and to become as God intended for us to be before the fall. And that's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, when it's talking about this idea, this is called putting things to death, mortification it is called. But in Galatians 5, verse 24, the Bible says that uh, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, if I'm willing to crucify my flesh with its passions and desires, then I'm showing that I really belong to Jesus. And God's wanting me to grow up to understand that I really have to put him first above all things, all people, all relationships. And I've got to die to anything that goes against him being ultimate in my life. And that's what Luke 9.23 means when Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him what? Say it with me. Deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. So those are some of the reasons God gives us this command. And then finally and quickly, let's look at the counsel. How does he tell us to deal with this? In giving us the command, he gives us counsel to know how to navigate through these waters. He tells us how to find victory. Remember, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 that no temptation has taken us or come to us except that which is common to all mankind, right? We're all tempted. We all sin in our lives. But the Bible says no temptation has taken you except which is common to everybody, but he says the Lord is what? Will provide a what? A way of escape if we will look for it. So how do we find that way of escape? Well, in our passage, here's the counsel Jesus gives to us. Matthew 5, in verses uh, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You know, in the history of the church, this almost startling statement of Jesus has been taken literally by some people. I don't know if you know that or not, but uh, perhaps the most famous person to take this literally was an, an early church uh, theologian named Origen from Egypt, from Alexandria. And he took this literally and he mutilated himself and made himself a eunuch. And this must have been followed by a number of people because in the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, they made a, it a forbidden practice of Christians to mutilate yourself literally in relationship to this text because some people were doing that. Well, Jesus is not telling us here literally to mutilate our flesh. He's obviously using hyperbole to make a point. But he is making a point. And he is saying that in relationship to sin, we must be morally ruthless in moral self-denial. 
He is not calling us to be physically ruthless to ourselves, but he is calling us to be spiritually ruthless. Mortification. Put these things to death. So that's what this means. So if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. What's he saying? He's saying if, if this is an area where you're struggling, act as a person who is literally blind. That is, don't look. Act like you're blind. If your imagination is stimulated, don't let it be stimulated. Don't read certain things. Don't go to certain movies. Don't look at certain things in the world. And this would have application to things beyond pornography. I mean, some people draw lines in their life about what rating of a movie they would go see because they don't want to see anybody that's nude. Well, if that's your area where you think you need to draw that line, then draw that line. That's the idea here, plucking out your eye. Act as though you're blind to these things. Live as a blind person to these things. And then he says... Uh, further, he says that if your right hand causes you to stumble, the right hand was the hand of strength and what you depended upon in life. And the idea here of the hand, in another place he talks about the foot, it would be don't reach into certain places, don't go certain places, don't engage in certain things. And this would mean putting guards around ourselves so that we have rails to keep us on the right path. And so we remember Billy Graham's rule or Mike Pence's rule that they don't meet with women by themselves. They don't eat dinner with women by themselves. They're not involved in situations where they might be tempted. I don't think that that's necessarily something everybody has to follow in their life. You've got to make these decisions of where to draw the boundaries. But you have to make some decisions, and I do too, about where to draw the boundaries, where to put the sentries, uh, the, the, the ones who are the guardrails to protect us. So what should be our response then to this calling from Jesus to honor God with our bodies, both physically and mentally in our hearts? Well, we must make the decision to protect our hearts and minds and bodies. Decide what sentries, what warnings you need in place. Each of us has to know our weaknesses and plan accordingly. It may mean changing our paths or what we look at. Secondly, we need to repent of our sin, whether it's committed in mind or body. And again, this can run both ways. And this is an area of life where we go through life and all of us have, have felt these things in our hearts and our minds of right things that are temptations. And if there's some area even in your life where you have fallen into this area, tell God about it and know that in Christ it is covered in Him, but be willing to say, Lord, I'm willing to put the centuries here to, to protect myself from this happening again, even in my heart, in my thoughts. Another thing would be to seek counsel where you may have had failure. Maybe your marriage is, is hurting today because of this. But I want you to know there is hope for your marriage and there's hope in forgiveness. It can be found and trust can be reestablished. And it's important for our witness and for the future of our families. Next, if you have a stronghold in your life, like with pornography, and I know statistically that Christian men struggle with this, as well as non-Christian men who live in a digital age that's changed everything in relationship to how quickly images can be there before you. And if this is an area where you have a stronghold, seek counsel. And I want you to know I have people, we have a counseling center here, but I have people that I refer people to that are 
this is what they focus upon, what they're skilled at. It will help you to find victory over this area in your life. And Jesus is saying, deal seriously with this. Be willing to act as though you're blind. You're plucking your eyes out so that you can be free because he wants you to, to live life victoriously here. And then finally, I think to protect ourselves, one other thing is, I don't have time to pursue this today, but we must look at the whole area of sexuality and our relationships with our spouses in some ways differently. Our identity is to be in Christ. And we want to honor Him in every area of life. Some people fall into adultery because they've been married for a lot of years and say, you're not meeting all of my needs. You're not satisfying all of my needs. I start looking over here. But you see, God never intended for that person you're married to to meet all of your needs. They're weak and fallen and a sinner like you. Their bodies are going to age. Life is going to change. And if you're putting the onus of responsibility on your spouse to say, you got to meet all of my needs, and you're putting them up on a shelf where that's their, your ideal for them, you're putting them in the wrong place. And they cannot bear the weight of that for you. And so we must change how we look at this. My identity is in Jesus. He is my ultimate satisfaction, right? Not my spouse. He is my ultimate fulfillment. He is my closest friend. He is my Lord. He is my soulmate. <laughs> and I in my life must begin to look at him in that way and not put that responsibility on another human being. Well, again, this is a subject that has a lot of other scripture related to it. We could go much deeper with it, but I hope that this helps us think about how we can grow in this area, protect ourselves in this area, move beyond this area if we've struggled with things in the past, to know that under the grace of God there is forgiveness, right? And you can move forward and find victory in your life. And we can be those who build our homes and our lives the way Christ would have us do, to honor Him above all, for He is our Lord. Let's stand, let's pray. We'll take just a moment for a time of commitment. You respond as God so leads. Thank you, Lord, for this day and for Your Word. We thank You for loving us enough to speak frankly to us about this beautiful gift You've given to us. But Lord to tell us how we're to use it for our best good, for human flourishing, for our growth in Christ, to honor you above all. And Lord, I just pray that um, through this message, we not only hear your command, but also hear of your grace to forgive those who repent and the promise of the power of your Holy Spirit to overcome. Help our church always to be one, Lord, that while we preach the truth, we do so in grace. And, Lord, that we do so in love. And there's hope. I pray for anyone in this room or watching online who's not trusted in you as their Savior, that they'll know that for whatever sin they have committed, there is forgiveness. And the gift of eternal life, if they will call on Jesus to save them. The power of your spirit will come and help them along to overcome all types of sin. I pray, Lord, that if there are those in the hearing of my voice in this room that has sinned physically in this way, that, Lord, you would help them to get before you and lay it down and seek restoration. They're believers and 
If there are marriages that are broken and trust is not there, that, Lord, um, couples might make a commitment to say that we made vows and um, we want to honor Christ. We want our marriage to reflect His love and forgiveness and that, Lord, somehow they might begin to find their way forward and heal. And, Lord, just to know that it's worth it to fight for our marriages. I pray if there are those who are looking at these things wrongly and putting so much weight on their spouse that they can never bear care that weight, that they would die to that today and find their satisfaction in you. We pray now that uh, whatever you want to do in this time of commitment, that you just help us to respond rightly to your word. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name.